1: those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. The Lord, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with them, an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen were just as they had been told. Oh, the Christmas story is so awesome. God, born among men, giving up the glory of heaven and coming down in humble Obedience to the Father. Becoming a baby. To be the atonement of the world. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. You're welcome to to enjoy today's broadcast. It's a Christmas gift to you. I've shared this story before, but... It is so powerful, and I keep going back to it, and it encourages my heart. It's a true story. It's a story about a pastor, an evangelist, not a pastor, an evangelist, a holiness preacher, as he called himself, by the name of C.G. Bevington. He wrote in the book Remarkable Miracles about this event that took place in his life. He ministered in eastern Ohio, southern Ohio, other parts of the country in the early years of the century, 1900s. This book was written sometime in the 1920s. I want to share this with you because it's such an awesome story that encourages us to walk faithfully with this Jesus who is now the risen Lord and who is desiring to reach all men and all women with the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God has come and you can be a part of it. He writes, In the fall, I began to get some inkling that I needed to go to Chattanooga, believing I was only Thinking this, because Brother Allen lived there and it would be pleasant to see him, I didn't give the thought much attention. But the thoughts did not subside. Rather, they kept growing until I seemed nearly to have a monster by the tail. As a trip clear to Chattanooga was a large undertaking for my limited faith at the time, the Lord decided to head me for Cincinnati first. That didn't seem to be such a hard problem. I was attached to the work in Cleveland and did not want to leave there, so I did not listen very well to the Cincinnati call either. Yet the call was quite loud and insistent. I finally said, Lord, if thou wilt send someone to take my place, I will go, though for the life of me I could not see why I should. I was making good progress there in Cleveland, But as so often happened, when I finally surrendered my will and said I would obey, in three days a man and his wife came. As soon as they saw me, she burst out laughing and said, That's the man. Yes, he's the one. The husband agreed. He certainly is. This is the place. Though I had prayed and asked for someone to take my place, I could think of no former acquaintance with this couple and must have appeared somewhat bewildered. Sensing my confusion, they proceeded to explain the vision that they had seen, which indicated I was included two nights before in Rochester, New York. I believed their story, and assented that they must be the people God had sent to take my place. Then, excusing myself, I went up into my room and fell across the bed. I broke out in sobs, and I tried to accept my departure. I was not ready to leave my beloved work there, and I soaked my bed with tears of remorse. Finally, I said, God, I cannot doubt these people came from you, but I cannot leave in this condition, O God. If it's really true that you want me to leave, relieve me from this work and remove the burden of it from my heart. Soon the tears were dry and the cloud had lifted. The sunlight of heaven broke upon me with such beautiful mellowness that I felt all desire to remain melt away. It was settled. I was prepared to go, but I had no money to go on. While praying in my room about railroad fare to Cincinnati, I heard a knock at the door. I opened it, and there stood a Salvation Army sister who had helped me much in my work. Brother Bevington. We just learned that you're leaving us, she said. These people who have come to take your place have a baby organ and won't need yours. I want to buy it. I had opened 14 missions, equipping each one fully. I had never taken anything with me or sold anything from any of them. I've never done such a thing, I told her. Just then the dear brother, who had come from New York, stepped to the door and spoke up. We won't need your organ. We both feel you need the money, so please sell it to her at once. The sister promptly asked what it was worth. I paid $15 for it and used it for four months. I'd guess it's worth at least $10. It would be cheap at $12. I'll give you $12 for it, and with that she laid down the money and took the organ. I took the money and departed. First, I bought $3 worth of clothing and then purchased an $8 train ticket for Cincinnati. I had a dollar left and some 20 cents in pocket change. I arrived in Cincinnati and spent the night in nearby Constance. The following morning, I was walking around downtown streets when I passed a very large storefront window on 4th Street Street. Looking inside, I noticed a bulletin board with the words, Your last chance. I continued on. But the words, last chance, kept tugging at my curiosity. Finally, I returned to the window to peer in again to see if I had read it right. I had. But that still didn't tell me what it meant, so I opened the door and looked inside. It was a railroad office. I pointed to the board and asked the attendant, Sir, what does that mean? Just what it says, he replied with little enthusiasm. What is it saying? Sighing, he said, haven't you heard the price reduction to the excursions to Chattanooga? No, I haven't. Well, Chattanooga fares are greatly reduced, and this is the last chance, the last day you can use them. What time does the last train leave? Nine this evening. I started back out and then remembered I'd not asked the price. Well, what's the price? Peering over his spectacles in disgust at so many questions, he said, Round trip is $3.75. Round trip means clear to Chattanooga and back. Anything else you want to know? I slipped back out on the street and began to walk away. Chattanooga was ringing in my ears. I approached the intersection where I would board the streetcar for my lodgings of the night before, and the voice kept repeating, Chattanooga, over and over in my head. Then a voice said, plain and clear, Will you or will you not go to Chattanooga? I was startled but quickly replied, Yes, Lord, I will, but there it was again, that little word that has stranded so many. I was not about to be sidelined by those three letters. I boarded the streetcar, made my goodbyes, retrieved my suitcases, and returned to the downtown area I struck out for the railroad depot with only 30 minutes left before the final last-chance train. Noticing a man eyeing me very closely as I approached the depot, I thought to myself, he won't get much money if he plans to waylay me. As I came near, he broke out in a smile, and when I reached him, he threw his arms around me and said at last, "'Brother Bevington!' "'Yes, but I'm in a hurry. "'I want to make a train in twenty minutes. "'Who are you?' He fell in beside me as I hurried toward my destination. He laughed as we entered the depot, saying, "'You prayed for my wife four years ago, and Jesus healed her.' She said, "'Since we don't have any more doctor bills,' Let's give Brother Bevington our doctor's money. In one year, we had five dollars for you, and I'd been carrying it around for the past three years, waiting to see you again. God had brought this man in from the country just to meet me. Oh, how it pays to let God do his work. He understands his business far better than we do. God, will we ever learn Will we ever learn? We got to the train just in time for me to be shoved onto the last coach. I collapsed in my seat and thought, Well, here I am, Lord, at your command. Now what are you going to do with me? As was often the case, when I questioned God, I got the simple answer, What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Arriving in Chattanooga, I did not feel it right to arrive on Brother Allen's doorstep unexpectedly since they were very poor and had a family. So I spent 20 cents to check my two heavy suitcases and splurged my last 80 cents on dinner. How I lingered over that meal. But finally I stood out in the street, penniless, homeless among strangers. I decided to walk a while and think about my situation. Passing along a high board fence, I noticed a sign at 2.30 p.m. Sunday, every Sunday. I stopped and looked around to see if the sign might mean something, indicating something, but could see nothing. So I walked slowly on, wondering what the sign meant. And then I heard a call and looked back to see a, a man with such a glow in his face, I knew he had to be a real child of God he started toward me with a great big smile on his face. "'Lord, bless you!' he exclaimed. "'You're the man! You're the man!' "'Well, what do you mean?' "'You're the man I've been looking for. "'You're going to preach in the mission down here at the corner. "'The man who was there has gotten sick. "'I was down to see him three weeks ago, "'and he told me he was not able to continue.' He asked me to pray for a man to come and give him relief. So I went into my home, got down, and laid the case before the Lord. He showed me, just as you are now, except you had two big suitcases, one black and one yellow. Brother, where are your suitcases? I laughed. I guess you have the whole thing pretty straight. Oh, I know that. Yes, sir, I got it straight, all right, from God. He pointed the way. I should go and... Ask for the two baggage checks. I'll bring the suitcase to you in my cart. As I went on, another man called to me, You're the man Joe told me about, aren't you? Come on in the house and get a drink of cool water. I followed him in, and after I had enjoyed a long, refreshing drink, he said, Now let's have prayer together. Well, that was fine with me. We got down on our knees and prayed. "'I don't believe I've ever had freer access to the throne in my life "'than I did there in that modest home. "'As I left, he gave me a dollar bill. "'Then he showed me to the mission where I was to preach. "'The man of the mission was sitting at the window on the second floor "'where he could look down the road. "'He knew who I was instantly from the description "'Joe had given him three weeks earlier.' He came down quickly and welcomed me heartily and then introduced me to his young wife. I was to begin preaching that night. The mission was run by different churches. The ME church one night, the Baptist the next, and so on. There were five meetings a week with a different church coming in each night. I soon saw that some of these meeting house folks didn't take to my way of preaching very well. The Methodist folk took me all right. On the second night, the Methodist night, three came to the altar, and we had a good time. On the fourth night, the meeting was for another church. As I was preaching, in came a man who was drunk. As was their custom, he was signaled to go back out. But he didn't seem inclined to go, so the head man of the church said to the leader, Put that man out. But I stopped. I called out, hold on there. Don't put that man out. But the man in charge motioned the leader to obey his order. So I jumped over the railing, the platform. I rushed to them and implored the leader, please don't put that man out. Jesus came to save just such a poor creature as he is. You don't know this man, he said. He's the lowest down creature in town. He has to go out. Put him out. I sprang between the leader and the drunkard and stood my ground. They dropped back, and the drunkard dropped down on a seat. The odor emanating from him soon cleared most of the room. The boss and his crowd all got up and left, taking some fifty people with them. As the leader went out the door, he turned and said, Brother Bevington, I know what Jesus came for, but we've been dealing with this man for ten years. There is no hope for him. My dear brother, you will never make me believe that. Jesus can make a difference, and he will, if we will give him a chance. The leader called back over his shoulder. Then you and him go for it. I'm putting out the lights, but the one by the pulpit, and we're leaving. And they all got up and walked out. I ushered the drunken man up to the front of the platform and began to lay hold of God for him. He did pretty well until about 2 a.m., and then he began to get rather boisterous. He said he was burning up and had to have some whiskey. Just get me to a pint, and I'll be all right. I'd like to be a Christian, but I'm in hell right now. I kept trying to reason with him, but he was getting the best of me. Being much stronger than I was, he kept backing me toward the door in spite of all I could do. Within a couple of hours, he'd pushed me to within eight feet of the door. Near exhaustion, I knew something had to happen. I wanted to call out to the man sleeping upstairs, but the spirit rebuked me. So I held my peace and began to intercede at the throne more intensely. Unable to hang on any any longer, I finally let go of the man, threw up my hands, crying out, God, what did you send this man in here for? What did you send me here for? Oh, God, come, come, come. At the third come, the man fell prostrate on the floor. He actually crawled around under the chairs like a snake. Then I began to plead to have the demon cast out. God, cast him out, cast him out, I cried. In 30 minutes, the man was as quiet as a lamb. He sat up and he rubbed his face and he said to himself, Is this really Tom? Well, I believe I just got religion. Oh, you may have religion, Tom, but you do not have salvation yet, I warned him. Oh, no, I know better. I have religion for sure. Well, then come up to the altar and get saved, I invited him. Well, I'm saved right now. No, you're not saved. You just had the whiskey demon cast out. Now you're a candidate for forgiveness. He kept insisting that he was already saved. But I finally got him to the altar. He got down and prayed earnestly until he began to see that he did indeed need salvation. In a little over an hour, he prayed through. Oh, all of the dancing you've ever seen anyone do. Old Tom did it right there. The young wife came downstairs about then, and she was delighted. She called her husband down, and both seemed satisfied that Tom was really a saved man. I was thoroughly worn out from wrestling all night with this ferocious man, and needed some rest badly. But I said to the couple, get me a tub. A broom, a bar of soap, and a scrubbing brush. Then go get some good clothes. I'll take Tom out in the backyard and I'll scrub him up. I used three tubs of water and a bar of soap and actually succeeded in getting him fairly clean. They furnished me with some good clothes and soon we had him looking like an entirely different man. Whiskey may have floored him, but he was a well-educated man. God began to gather up the fragments of his life, polished and put them back in place and he was in pretty good shape by the time we were through with him. He looked at me and he said, will you go down to my cousins? I used to be his foreman in his lumber yard, but he hasn't allowed me around for years. We went down just as the cousin was preparing to eat his dinner. Tom had me stand in front when I knocked on the door, and we were invited inside. The cousin looked at me and then at Tom and did not recognize either one of us. I did not readily make our business known, and after some suspense, I said, Mr., did you ever see this man before? At that, Tom smiled, and the cousin said, This can't be Tom, can it? Tom sprang forward, saying, Yes, it is. I'm a new man, Bill. Jesus saved me and this preacher's cleaned me up. Then the mission gave me the nice clothes. Bill, I want to go to work again. I'll join the Methodist church with you if you'll have me. After a time of rejoicing and a wonderful meal, Tom took me outside and he asked me for one more favor. Brother Bevington, Jesus has cleaned me up on the inside, and you cleaned me up on the outside. Now I want you to go with me to see my wife. You have a wife? Yes, I have. At least I did. I haven't seen her for 11 years. They say she's worse than I was. She's down on Pokey Row with the very poorest and honriest people that are in Tennessee. I said I would, and back we went to the mission. The leader saw us coming and met us, and when I told him of our mission, he asked me to go upstairs alone with him. He looked at me very seriously, and he said, Brother Bevington, I think we can work something out with the manager of the mission, now that Tom is so different. But whatever you do, please don't go near that woman. It is unmistakably evident that God has undertaken for Tom, but that woman is a thousand leagues lower than Tom was. If you have anything to do with her, it will kill any aspect of getting him back in here. They'll probably throw me out. I'm too old and my health is not sufficient for me to make a living anywhere else. Please, Brother Bevington, listen to me. I was listening, and his dear young wife was too. She joined us, sitting down, a cool glass of lemonade for each one, and said, "'Husband?' I'm young, and I'm strong, and I'm willing to take in washing to make our living. I believe Brother Bevington is on the right track. He knows his God better than either one of us. If God could save Tom, he surely can save Liz. I say, let Brother Bevington alone and keep your hands off. Let him and God and Tom do their best. If it comes to our having to get out of here, I'll work our way through. I said, Amen, and took her by the hand. Tears of joy at her noble stand. God bless you, dear. You have a good heart. The husband finally agreed and kissed his wife, saying, Okay, my dear, you're the better of the two of us. I went downstairs calling out, Come on, Tom. We headed immediately, calling out, And we headed immediately to the worst vicinity of town. And after a distance, we turned into an alley where all of the combined poverty and ignorance and filth I'd ever seen in my life did not approach what was before us. I was somewhat taken back. But I said, we've started. We're going to trust Jesus. Finally, we reached our goal. The greater obstacle now loomed before us. We were there, but where was she? We had no idea even of how many times she might have changed her name. We ventured into a yard and began to make inquiries, but we could find no one who would involve themselves in our quest. Their only interest was whether or not we had any tobacco, whiskey, beer, or opium. Spying a stairway going up on the roof of one shanty, we climbed some twelve feet above the filth, thinking we might escape some of the awful stench. There on the roof, we began to call on God for information. Soon a huge man, very filthy, came out and saw us kneeling. He was curious, wanted to know what we were doing there. We told him, and he said, I know who you are. I'll bring her out. In all my mission work in Cincinnati, St. Louis, Louisville, Cleveland, I had never seen such a vile-looking, evil-smelling, hopeless case "'as the wretched woman this man brought before us. "'I told her what her name had been some fifteen years earlier, "'and she acknowledged she remembered using that name. "'Oh, how even I wondered if Jesus could do anything "'for such a creature as stood before me. "'After attempting to talk with her further, "'I finally brought Tom forward to present him to her. "'She grunted in surprise and squinted up her eyes, "'peering at him with great suspicion.' Is that you, Tom? Tom assured her it was and began to tell her what God had done for him and how he believed he would do as much for her. She cursed him. Feigning complete disinterest, she turned to smoking an old pipe she clutched in her dirty hand. She only stopped to swear at him further. I don't know what was in that old pipe, but the stench was unbearable. But Tom kept telling her about Jesus. I was getting faint from the odor. Finally, I began to back my way down the filthy stairway. I said, we will come back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Make up your mind that you believe Jesus can do as much for you as he's done for Tom and that you can live a respectable life again. Then we hurried out of the malaria-infected pit as fast as we could. Tom went to his cousin's place and I went to the mission where I fell into my bed. I slept over twelve hours and awoke the next morning at dawn. I went down to breakfast and related our previous day's trip to my hosts. The young wife was very interested and immediately began to gather up many of her own clothes for Tom's wife. They're going to-they're going to go get her and she'll need these, she said confidently. Her husband still tried to persuade us not to bring her here to the mission. The wife said, we'll take her down to my Uncle Ben's coal house then. He's a man of God. He'll let us use it. Tom showed up at the door a short time later, full of hope and faith for his poor, emaciated emancip- wife. Back we went. There she was, bundled up in filthy rags standing out at the head of the first alley, waiting for us. The first thing to do was get her cleaned up, so we took her back to the mission, and Tom led her into the same yard where he got cleaned up. He used five tubs of water and two bars of soap to get her clean enough to put on the nice clothes waiting for her. The leader of the mission was not able to go, but the wife went with us to Uncle Ben's coal house, a nice, clean enclosure. If I thought I'd had a terrible time with Tom, I found it was nothing compared to what we were about to go through with this wild, unreasonable woman. We wrestled with her for 84 hours, a day and a night. It took all of us to exert any kind of control, for she managed to bruise Tom all up first, and then she turned her fury on me. She was pounding and pulling on me so roughly she tore my clothes almost to pieces. Tom had to extricate me from her clutches, but together we managed to hold her inside the building. We fed her coffee. We gave her good food. And we prayed. And we prayed. Until the 85th hour, when she was knocked down by the power of God. She lay on her back, cursing God and man alike, froth foaming out of her mouth, but she was powerless, perfectly helpless and exhausted. She lay that way on the floor for the next nine hours until at last she was completely quiet and still. Then she raised her hands, weeping, and asked us to help her up. Her clothes and Tom's were in complete shreds, We sent for more clothing before we could even take them out of the building. When the clothing arrived and they had dressed, we took her to Tom's cousin's house. The next morning, she prayed through most gloriously. She didn't dance like Tom did, but simply walked the floor with her right hand up toward heaven for the next two hours laughing softly and saying, Oh, glory. Finally, we all went in to sit down for a wonderful family dinner with Tom's cousin. The next day, the cousin outfitted a three-room cottage with new furniture for them. Then he gave them both new clothes and other necessities. Once those needs were met, the cousin gave Tom his old job back I had the privilege of marrying Tom and his wife over again before they set up housekeeping. Then upon our insistence, after they were installed in their new home, Tom and his wife prayed through to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That created quite a stir in the many who knew of them in their past. Neither one of these two ever went back into sin. They had three sweet children with them the last time I saw them at the Cincinnati camp meeting. God is really in the saving business. That's what Jesus came for. And he made sure this purpose of saving souls was in the reach of whosoever would believe. I saw Tom and his wife three months or three more times at the Cincinnati camp meeting, and they always gave glorious testimonies on that platform. They were most blessedly saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this story I share with you as a Christmas gift. And I want to say to you, it doesn't matter how bad your condition is. It doesn't matter what your sickness is. It doesn't matter what your financial situation is. It doesn't matter all the sin you've committed against God. Jesus is in the saving business. He didn't come and lay in that manger as a baby just to be a romantic idol. He came as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He came to save the lost. He came to save you. Now, you may have religion. And you may go to church every Sunday. You may pay your tithe. You might even be a preacher. But if you've not been sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a great work yet Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to bring you into that incredible, wonderful relationship with himself where God now is in charge of your life. As I, as I read this whole book, it's filled with stories of this man, Guy Bevington. As he's directed by the Holy Spirit, he goes where the Lord sends him. He has no money. He waits on the Lord for money. And the Lord feeds him, clothes him, sends him wherever he wants him to go. Do you know Jesus this way? Have you given up all dependence upon yourself? This Christ child came to say, Trust me. I'll care for you. I'll carry you. You are my prized possession. And I can take away all the sin of your heart. I can wash you and make you clean. I'm just wondering today, is anyone listening to this broadcast and you know how dirty you are? You know how you've lied or cheated You know how you've fornicated or been deep into pornography. You know the bitterness of your heart, the anger and the malice that rises up when you see certain people. Maybe you're an alcoholic or drug addict. Maybe you're a pothead. I don't care what your condition is. Jesus is the answer he's everything he's god he's king of kings and lord of lords and i love him and i come day by day to tell you of the glorious wonderful power of our lord i want to share just a bit more of this story because it's going to point out people who have religion but don't have any salvation They have no sanctification. They have no holiness. They're just professional Christians. The mission managers did end up giving orders for the leader and his wife who had stood up so faithfully by me to pick up their belongings and leave. The story of Tom and his deliverance and salvation was being told about everywhere. Two days after he had prayed through with me in the mission, I was preaching a meeting on Sunday with the Methodist Church. Some 20 of those involved with the leader's dismissal came and fell at the altar. Several of them prayed through. Do you understand what he's talking about? They came to the altar to say, I give up all control of my life and I surrender to Jesus and I will receive him and obey him. And then they prayed through. Well, what's that mean? That means they stayed on their face before God and prayed through every temptation in their life and every sin in their life until they were very clear that everything was on the altar before God. They did an inventory of their life and they surrendered everything. It says several of them prayed through. And after God adjusted their thinking further, they decided to allow the former leader and his wife to remain at the mission i felt it was now time that this man went after the holy spirit so i went after him he was somewhat scared of that but god showed him up in a couple of days he was truly seeking and then the wife came seeking for the same blessing with those two with tom and his wife it was a busy week but glory to god the lord got them all through During the time this man was down at the altar seeking the Holy Spirit, several of the leaders came to break off the proceedings and ordered us to leave. They threatened to discharge him again, but he'd gone so far in his seeking he could not turn back. He pressed on through. And when his wife prayed through also, the leaders again rescinded their orders and allowed them to remain. What a time we were having. Some of the meeting house folk pulled completely out at this time, but the Methodist people stood by him. They all decided that I should not preach anymore, so I quietly stepped aside. I was allowed to use a spare room and take my meals until I could determine my next assignment. I wasn't upset, for I knew that God had accomplished exactly what he'd wanted to go through for my time there. Now, what's so clear is that Brother Bevington was not offended when they said, we don't want you to preach anymore. In other words, you've done enough damage to this place. (laughs) Oh, glory be that God would call pastors and evangelists and people who would pray through to victory who would give up all pride of heart. They'd give up everything but following the orders of Jesus and knowing that he was there for them. I tell you, I want Jesus. And I know some of you today need to pray through. Some of you today, in fact, probably most of you have never prayed through. You've never prayed through every issue of your life until finally you could honestly stand before the throne of God and say, all that I am now belongs to you, Jesus. Now do with me whatever you will. I give you my wife. I give you my children. I give you my job. I give you all that I possess. Lord, I am yours. All that I am, I give to you, Jesus. And prayed that through until there was assurance in your heart that you were through. In other words, as Paul speaks about this, Romans, the 12th chapter, let me just turn quickly and read this to you i hadn't planned to do this but i think i need to romans i'm going to read for you from the 12th chapter therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. How is it? Have you conformed to the pattern of this world? Or are you clean before God today? Do you still have those little nagging things in your heart, or big things, like alcoholism, or drugs, or fornication, or some other ugly, unclean thing that you're hiding, lying, cheating, stealing, not doing business with integrity, but grasping after money. Selfish, self-centered. Or have you laid it all down on the altar? Now, I don't have but a minute or so left in this broadcast today. If you know that you are in a place today where you either have or you want to lay it all down, I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm pleading today for my brother and my sister who has recognized out of this broadcast the glorious truth that Jesus can save anyone. And, Lord, many listening to this broadcast know that they have held back on you. They've cheated you. They have kept to themselves, as Ananias and Sapphira did, a portion of their own life. Lord, they have held out on you. They have said they wanted to be a Christian, but they still are in charge of their life, and they rule their life with an iron hand going where they want to go and doing what they want to do. Not giving as you call them to give of their money, their time, or their energy. Lord, would you come very close right now to each person who is making that decision and who is ready now to pray through, ready to lay it all down on the altar. Almighty God, You are a God who saves. Jesus, you came to save the very least among us. I plead your mercy today. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I can't fight this war on the radio alone. It's going to be by your might and by your power as you break out in revival and cause men and women to begin to weep before you and pray and seek your face and determine that they will not own themselves anymore. They won't hold back on you like Ananias and Sapphira did. They lay it all down. Lord, don't let the sophistication of this age, the cynicism of this age, block my brother and sister from coming and being absolutely honest with you about their condition. Lord, some have utterly cold hearts. They need your fire ignited in them once again. Others have never had the fire. They've always been a phony. They've always been false to you, Jesus. They've always said, I'm going to be a Christian, but they never have really been a Christian. Lord, I plead your mercy today. Lord, I plead your mercy. I plead that you would break out in revival power among those listening to this broadcast, that men and women won't just turn the broadcast off and go their way, but Lord, you'll call them to get before you on their faces and cry aloud to you. Lord, thank you. I stand by faith for these precious ones. Lord, receive the victory. Receive the victory. I pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I've shared a story as a Christmas gift to you. I'm going to share another story tomorrow. Then next week I'm going to be off all week for a time of prayer and rest, seeking the Lord's face, not going anywhere, just going to stay home and Search after Jesus for new power for this coming year. I pray you'll lift me up before the throne of grace. I'd love to hear from you. It's not too late to reach me by Christmas. Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel Post Office Box twenty three forty six, Woodbridge, Virginia two. One nine five. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. 22195 I thank those of you who have sent precious gifts. Thank you for your encouragement. One man sent me a homemade cross. Thank you. I appreciate the love and encouragement that you all share. And I treasure your participation with me in paying for this radio broadcast. Go to my webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. I'd love to hear from you there, giving online. Just go to nationalprayerchapel.com and click on the donate button. Wow, this day went by very quickly. I want to tell you, I'm praying for you. I'm crying out to God for you. I love you. I'm Ray Greenley, Pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Call me 703-489-1785. I'll talk to you
0: soon.